So um, through my upbringing, I was taught about God, and um, I had faith all throughout my childhood. Um, my first loss at the age of 12 was my grandfather, and um, that's when I really started to question everything. Reality, um, afterlife, what happens from here? I didn't really have guidance from my father, so I'd find guidance through my uncles. So I went to my uncle for some answers and support, and in doing that, he just crushed my faith. He told me God was not real, and um, that we're basically just alone and um, unimportant. A few years in, um, he started to share stories to me about um, his plan to commit suicide, and um, and uh, I carried that with me. I didn't tell anyone. He told me not to tell anyone, and he would glamorize that until the day he finally did do it, and I was just crushed. And um, I lived the rest of my life with a filter um, that this was okay, that he was not so bad, that. That was my path, and that was my journey. Um, I was at the my deepest, darkest point. Um, I felt hopeless and alone, and um, I started to plan my own suicide. This is the path that my uncle had come to, and in my eyes, I was on his path. I was living by his words and his ways so I never expected to get much into my 30s. He didn't. So when I finally felt I just couldn't handle it anymore, I started to figure out a, a nice clean way to end my life. Um, I showed my wife that I'm serious about this. I'm done. Um, I told her to take the kids, go to her parents. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And. Um, at that moment, I just started to just question everything. I questioned why my father didn't want to give me the time that I can so easily give my kids. That just comes second nature to me. And if I'm at this point, I want some answers before I leave this world. I just want to understand why he did this, um, why he lived his life that way. So I had the benefit of being in touch with a woman that he was at once engaged to that I just adored throughout my life and um, she was also close to my uncles so I figured that would be the best place of any to get some answers so I just on a leap of faith just took that drive I went out and I just broke down in front of her in front of her husband whom I have never met and just said I didn't know what I'm doing I, I, I don't know where I'm going from here I need help and they opened me with open arms. And um, I looked around and I'd see Christian signage and in this house we pray. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. That's, that wouldn't be my choice of decor, but that's nice. They're nice people. So um, about a day in, I decided to take a drive because I, I was actually at one point living in that area in South Carolina. It was at that point where I felt the most alone I have ever felt in my entire life. So I just started driving back towards my friend's house. 
But at some point I just couldn't even do that. So I pulled off the road into a parking lot and the sign on the building said Miracle Hill Thrift Store. Something told me to just walk in. I walked in there, walked right up to the books, and at that point I lost control of my body. I just felt weak. I grabbed the shelf for some support, grabbed onto a book, almost dropped to my knees and just called out, I need help, can someone help me? At that moment, a woman said, my husband's a pastor, he can help. He ran over and supported me from falling and guided me over to a chair. I looked down, what I was holding was a holy Bible. And at that moment, this, this stranger said, can I pray for you? I said, I need help, please, sure. In that moment he did, he, he, he prayed for me in the middle of that store. Everything stopped. Um, at that moment, I just started shaking like I am now. <laughs> I lost control, but I felt something different. I, uh, that loneliness left my body. I felt comforted in his words, and I felt warm, and I felt loved, and changed. And after that, I just thanked him, thanked him. I asked him, what do I do from here? Where do I go? He said, go home, get some rest, and then go out, find a church. I had passed by Vero Christian Church quite often in my travels, and um, it just always caught my eye. So one day I just woke up, I told my wife, who wasn't a believer, that, hey, I'm gonna go look around for churches. Um, expecting pushback, ex expecting wonder of why, but she was supportive of that in my journey. So I just went in and I listened to a sermon. And at that point I knew I was where I needed to be. It, it all connected. It, I, I'm, I believe I'm, I'm where I need to be. And um, this was it, this was the place for me. So I came back again the next week and then the following week. And over time, my wife joined me and my kids. And we all started to find comfort in that building. Um, it was about this time I decided to see where I can go from there. So I went to the discovery class with Steve and I learned what the church was all about. And it was wonderful. And at that point, I was given a, a little piece of paper and it said, I, I require baptism, I have been baptized, I'm unsure. I checked off that I'm ready for baptism. Just felt it in my heart. And when I got home that day, I got a text from Steve, ready to do it. And um, I was ready. So we went to the beach and that was one of the greatest days of my life to be baptized in Christ. And just to have a fresh start, feeling the love and guidance of my friends and family, most importantly, of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we, we thank you for that testimony, Joseph. Uh, one of the things that reminds us of, doesn't it, is when we're rubbing shoulders with people, we never know if it's someone who needs hope, maybe a person who is hopeless. And it might be a word of encouragement from us, or it might be a prayer like the fellow who had prayer with Joseph, or an invitation to church, or steering someone toward church, that's a turning point in their life. 
That's probably happened with many of us here have sowed some seeds that we never saw come to fruition, but those things are happening. And the church deals in hope. Hope is what we're talking about today. So I know we have guests here. We're glad to have all of our guests this morning. I'm going to be talking about the resurrection, Easter Sunday. But we've been talking about the resurrection for four or five weeks in this series, Arise. We talked about Arise to Purpose, how the resurrection relates to the purpose in our life. Arise from despair. Arise to faith. Last week, arise to joy. And as we talked about the resurrection and joy, we saved part of it. We said, yeah, we have resurrection joy from interacting with Jesus, but there's, there's an aspect to our joy that's even greater than that, and that is the hope. Arise to hope. The resurrection of Christ gives us hope. And understand, the way the Bible uses the word hope, it's not the way sometimes that we use it. Sometimes we use hope in the sense of believing what you know ain't so. Believing what you know ain't going to happen. I hope I win the Reader's Digest sweepstakes, even though the odds are 1 in 6 billion, give or take, that I'm going to win. Biblical hope is confident expectation. Biblical hope is assurance. The reason it's hope is because it's something that's still to come in the future. But we have a confident expectation. So, I want to talk about hope this morning in two ways. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have hope in two ways. Number one, we have the hope that we can change. We can change. Our character can change and become better, become more and more like Christ. Now, as I mentioned last Sunday, when we are baptized, two things happen primarily. That's when God applies the death and the resurrection of Jesus to us as individuals. So when we're baptized, we're baptized into his death. And the death of Jesus substitutes for our death. So he's taking the wrath wrath of God that we deserve. It's being taken by Jesus for us. So God forgives our sin. And then secondly, when we're raised up out of the waters of baptism, God is applying the resurrection of Jesus to us in the sense the Holy Spirit indwells us, regenerates our heart, and gives us the power to change. Now, a couple of scriptures on this. The Bible actually uses this word regeneration in Titus 3, 5. Paul writes, God saved us by the washing of regeneration. That word washing is a reference to baptism. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The word regeneration there comes from the Greek word palingenesia, two root words. Palin means again. Genesia means born. So palingenesia, regeneration, means to be born again. Remember Jesus said, unless a man is, woman is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, must be born of the water and the Spirit. So when we're baptized, that's when our hearts are regenerated, made new, and we get this power to live a new life. The Bible speaks of this as a spiritual resurrection. So as Christians, we've experienced a spiritual resurrection, Colossians 2.12. When you were baptized, you were buried with Christ, and you were raised up with Him through your faith in God's power. God made you alive with Christ. Ephesians 2.4, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, and God raised us up with Christ. Spiritual resurrection. One more, Revelation 6.3, we were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is why we don't try to get our lives all straightened out 
before we're baptized. We get baptized so the Holy Spirit can help us overcome our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We don't have the, we're not going to do this through willpower. We're not going to muscle through character change and personal transformation on our own. We need the help of God. You know who understands this well? Is addicts who are in recovery. Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, or Narcotics Anonymous, any 12-step recovery group. Listen to the first three steps on a 12-step group. Number one, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. So as Christians, you know, we admitted that we were sinners. We cannot negate our sin in and of ourselves. Number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So we recognize, we come to faith in God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the step of faith. And then number three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. For us, that's repentance and baptism. And then we experience the spiritual resurrection and we can begin to make changes. I was listening to the political commentator Ben Shapiro a couple of weeks ago. And he mentioned the recent conversion of black China. I didn't know who that was, so I did a little research. And here's what I found out. Now, her real name is Angela White. She's a model and socialite who first rose to fame when she appeared as a stunt double for rapper Nicki Minaj. She told the Daily Mail, quote, Now I'm going by faith. I'm not going the black China way or the Angela way. I'm letting God lead me trusting God in every step that I take. She said that she received help from her pastors and church family, adding, you can't do it by yourself. She revealed that she was baptized on May 11, 2022, about 11 months ago. She said, I think my baptism played a big part. Because of her newfound faith, White quit posting to OnlyFans, an online platform where adult content is prominently featured. She said, with me being baptized, that's not what God wants me to do. It's degrading. And by the way, she was making between $1 and $2 million a year through her OnlyFans platform. That's part of what she's giving up. In addition to quitting OnlyFans, White said she's having some of her plastic procedures reversed. She says, as women, we want to look the best. We think everything needs to be perfect, but that's not normal. That comes from insecurity and being in a certain lifestyle. I'm done with that. White shared that she was also having a tattoo of the goat-headed demon Baphomet removed. She says, thank you, God, for saving me. I'm removing this tattoo and sending all that energy back to its owner. I say kudos to Angela White. That's a great decision, and these are great changes in her life. They're dramatic changes, and she's sharing all of this with her 16 million followers on Twitter. That takes courage. But my point here is that the resurrection of Christ through the Holy Spirit gives us the power to make changes. But a, and a part of the point is the changes take time. Her changes are taking place over 11 months, they will, and there will be a lifetime. This is a progress. It takes a lifetime for these changes to take effect. We're all on that journey as well. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you can't change or that no one ever changes. We can. Now, sometimes it may feel like three steps forward, two steps back. 
There may be relapses along the way. That's the nature of change. Keep pressing forward and don't give up. We have hope of change because of the resurrection. But that's not the most important hope that we have. After all, some people come to Christ very late in life, and if, if these changes take time, they may not have a lot of time left to change. Think of the thief on the cross. He came to faith in Jesus in the last hours of his life. How much character change did he experience? Probably practically nothing. None. But he still had hope. So what hope did he have? Well, this is the second hope. We have hope to change because of the resurrection. The second hope that we have is hope for life. It's hope for life. The angel said to the women in the cemetery, Matthew 28, 6, he is risen from the dead. What good is a lot of character change if it all goes away when we die, if death is the end? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if it's only for this present life that we have put our hope in the Messiah, we are the most pitiable members of the human race. The primary implication of Jesus' resurrection is that there is life after death. Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, we will live. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. I think this is one of the biggest draws of Christianity. Maybe the biggest draw is that after death, we will live. We will be raised to eternal life. But it's a draw we maybe don't often think about because we don't think about our death in concrete terms. Death is something we know intellectually happens to all people, but we kind of feel like maybe it'll make an exception in our case. Death is something that's way out there, happens to other people. Let me give you a, a hypothetical example. The principles here are true. When George turned 21, he decided to start investing $200 a month every year for nine years. $200 a month every year for nine years. At age 30, he stopped investing altogether. At age 68, how much money will George have in his account, assuming an average 10% rate of return? Over two and a quarter million dollars. That's the magic of compound interest. But it takes time. You've got to start when you're 21 in this example. Now, I knew this when I was 21. I did. I'd actually been taught this when I was 21. I knew it, but I didn't do this when I was 21 because I was 21. And at 21, 68 looks so, so far away. But now, not so much. And death is kind of like that, especially when you're young. Yeah, you feel invincible. Death is something that's way, way far away. And in general, people are like this in general, even, even as we age until we get really old. When we get really old, then we start to think maybe about our mortality a little bit. Or maybe we start going to a few funerals, we start to think about our mortality. Or maybe when we have a near-miss accident. You know, there are some video montages on YouTube. And they, go, they all have the same basic heading. 
the luckiest people in the world. And they range from anywhere from three minutes to 18 or 20 minutes. And, and they're video clips of near-miss accidents where people almost are killed, but they're not. The last minute, some quirk of timing spares their life. So they're called luckiest people a lot. Now, I want to show you a brief clip of one of these. And I'll tell you, no one gets seriously hurt in any of these incidents. But I want to show you some of these luckiest people alive and then come back and make a point. I could watch those all day. You say, so could we. Let's watch some more. Uh, no, so, so my point right there is probably some of us have had some experiences similar to that. We've had some close calls, right? And how you feel when that happens, you feel like, whoa, I could have died right then. I'm so lucky to be alive. Well, the truth is, we could die at any time. We're kind of lucky or blessed, however you want to say it, to be alive. But it takes something like that to bring the reality of our mortality from way out there, something that's hypothetical, to right here in front of your face. Or a diagnosis that brings it right here in front of our face. And then that causes us to ask the question, okay, I'm going to die someday. Then what? I am going to die, then what? And the Christian answer to that, the resurrection answer to that is, then you will live. You will live. Dinesh D'Souza has written a book called Life After Death, The Evidence. It's a very interesting book. It's not a Christian book per se. But in this book, he traces different lines and disciplines of study and lines of evidence like modern physics, modern biology, neuroscience, philosophy, NDEs, and others 
that all point to an existence after death. So if you've got a family member or a friend, or you are this type of person not really into religion, but you're just into the science, this is a great book. But let me read you a paragraph from his conclusion. He writes, far from disproving life after death, reason and scholarship give powerful support to it. On the issue that is central to all the world's religions, life after death, knowledge and science have shown themselves to be allies of belief. Reason and revelation don't clash. They reinforce one another. There are a lot of reasons to believe there's an existence after this existence. But for we Christians, the primary reason is the resurrection of Christ. Again, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Our associate minister, Scott Blount, preached that sermon, A Rise to Faith, where he talked about the eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection of Jesus and the extra-biblical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. We have confidence that we will live after we die because we have confidence that Jesus rose from the grave. And he conquered death, and his victory is our victory. Now, even if someone may be not familiar with the Bible, you probably know the story of David and Goliath. So David's the young Israelite shepherd who's going up in battle against the professional Philistine soldier who's also a giant, Goliath. I mean, that, that's entered into the common vernacular of an underdog who is victorious over superior forces. But did you know David and Goliath was a representative battle? And when David fought, he was representing all of the Israelite, the entire Israelite army. And Goliath represented the entire Philistine army. 1 Samuel 17, 8, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites, choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. So the Israelites, everybody's watching this one-on-one battle. And the Israelites, they probably look at David and said, oh, man, we're toast. We're all going to be slaves of the Philistines. But you know how the battle plays out. and David knocks out Goliath with the sling and then kills him with his, his own weapon, his sword. And we read then, 1 Samuel 17, 52, the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph. Hurrah! We crushed you, Philistines. Well, they didn't really crush anybody. They didn't do anything. It's David that did all the work. It's like you and your favorite team, maybe your pro football team, wins a game against their arch rivals, and you get on your phone, you start texting your friend back in New York City, "Ah, we crushed you. You didn't crush anybody, but your team did. They kind of represent you. Well, David represented the Israelites. They were all on Team David, and when he won, they won. Well, Jesus is the son of David, the descendant of David, his biological line. And he was going up against death. And Jesus defeated death, in fact, with death's own weapon, the cross, a symbol and representation of death. Now the empty cross represents what? Life. Jesus conquered death when he rose from the grave, but he conquered death for all of us. We're all enveloped in that victory because we're all on Team Jesus. 
When he rose from the dead, that means we get to rise from the dead. God has given us a metaphor for sleep, or for death, rather. He's given us a metaphor for death, and that is sleep. Sleep. It's a daily metaphor for death and resurrection. We might say, now, Jesus used sleep as a metaphor for death six different times. The Bible uses sleep as a metaphor for death 18 different times. It's the most common metaphor for death is sleep. In what way is sleep like death? You can't push a metaphor too far. It's not like death in all ways. I think the most common and most important way that sleep is like death is that we wake up. We wake up. Every time we go to sleep, we wake up. You can't live without going to sleep. I'm 64 years old. I did the math. That means that I have awakened from sleep 23,000 times in my life. And every one of those awakenings is a reminder that after I die, I'm going to live. When Jesus' friend Lazarus had died, he says in John 11, 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. Many of us here have loved ones who've fallen asleep, who've died. We have parents, aunts and uncles, brothers or sisters, very close friends. We may have children or grandchildren who've fallen asleep. We may have even had the experience of being in the room when someone took their last breath and closed their eyes. This is what we know because of the resurrection and this metaphor that when they close their eyes for the last time on this side, they are opening their eyes for the first time on the other side. Jesus is waiting to wake them up. Jesus said to that thief on the cross, today, they were both going to die that day. He said, today, you will be with me in paradise. We may be even watching someone we love right now. They're lingering, but they're in the process of going to sleep. Know that when they go to sleep here, they're waking up there. And when it comes our time, maybe we realize we're getting advanced in age and we can feel our time is coming. Know that when we close our eyes here, we will open our eyes on the other side. Jesus is waiting to wake us up. The great question is, we're all going to die. What happens when we die? The Christian answer, the resurrection answer is, we're going to live. We're going to live. God's given us two dress rehearsals for death and resurrection. One is sleep. And the other one, is baptism. In Romans 6, 5, Paul writes, if we shared in Jesus' death by being baptized, we will be raised to life with him. Biblical hope, it is a confident expectation. It is assurance, and it's based on the resurrection of Christ. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper at this time. Now, I want to give you a meditation before we do that, just a thought. The thought is, 
The Lord's Supper, the communion that we observe every Sunday is primarily about the death of Jesus. So the bread represents his body. The juice represents his blood that was shed, substitutionary death. That's important. But if not for the resurrection, the death would not have that significance. There were many people who were crucified in the first century. Jesus was not the only one. It was not uncommon. If it weren't for the resurrection, the death of Jesus would just be another death of someone that the Romans considered a criminal, just an execution. But because of the resurrection, everything that Jesus said is true about himself, his identity, and about us and life after death. Everything he said is true. Think about that today as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, just a couple of logistics. We don't always use these cups. So just in some instructions here, by the way, the wafer is not going to be as delicious as the homemade bread that we usually have every Sunday. We have, we have ladies in the church who make homemade communion bread for us. It's great. This, not so much. So let me give you some advice. Let that wafer sit on your tongue for a few seconds. It kind of dissolves and softens up. Otherwise, it's like chewing on cardboard. So there's that. There's two cellophane tops, the clear one with the wafer underneath, the second one with the juice beneath that. So understand you'll be peeling off two separate tops on this. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then you're free to partake of these elements where you sit. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that we have. It is a glorious hope. It is the knowledge that we can and we do change with the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And it is also knowledge and the assurance and the affirmation that even though we must go through this process of death and the body must be separated from the Spirit temporarily, we know that we will live again. And one day we'll be resurrected and our body will be reunited with Spirit, a place that you call the new paradise. We thank you and rejoice in that today. In Jesus' name.